This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Danny Levin. Danny was born and raised during the early part of his life in Philadelphia. At the young age of 10, he lost his father, whom he adored. Precisely two years later, down to the same day, he lost his mother. Danny headed to college after residing with an aunt and uncle for a while and studied psychology for two years before heading on a worldwide tour. He spent time in Israel, where he nearly became an ordained rabbi, and spent a decade in Northern California living in a monastery as a monk. He left the monastic order, married, and started a family. He lost his first wife to cancer when his daughter was merely eight years old. He has since remarried and adores the company of his wife and her two children. Danny published a book entitled The Mosaic and hosts a podcast of the same name. He also hosts a podcast entitled 50 Conversations with 50 Strangers. Danny, thank you so much for being on our show. It is such a pleasure, Asim. I, I have been looking forward to it from the moment we touch base because you you have a gentleness and a kindness that exudes through everything you do that I was looking forward to seeing the person behind those actions. That's very thoughtful, Dan. It means a great deal to me because uh, uh, the way you present yourself to the world and all uh, the, the different ways that you do that, I have felt nothing but pure humanity and, uh, and, and love ex- being expressed from you. And um, I, I just, uh, from hearing the podcast episodes, from hearing my friends comment on, on it, commenting on your, their interaction with you, from, from reading your book, it just uh, speaks volumes. So I have also been very much looking forward to this. Uh, I just, oh, I sensed that um, when we first started to interact and Didi first introduced us that this would be an ongoing conversation and this would be the first of many points of interaction. I love that. I hope yeah. so. that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here um, we are, my friend. We have a mutual love society coming in. <laughs> so I, I like that, right? It's a great, it's a very auspicious beginning, I have to say. Absolutely. You know, we probably should end our interaction now because it seems like the only way we can go is down, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's attempt lateral, lateral okay. expansion. So I love lateral. We won't everything, go up ab- everything about me is a horizontal reality. <laughs> like one of the things that I'm trying to do, even in the life that I live, is replace vertical realities with horizontal realities, meaning that if you think of what a mosaic looks like, and my book is not about what mosaics look like or any of that, um, but it's if, if you think about what the image of a mosaic is, it's pieces that are set out on a flat surface. Right. Some are larger, some are smaller, some are taller, some are shorter. But there's no vertical reality. Nobody, no piece is teaching another piece. No piece is fixing another piece. No piece is helping another piece. There's no real but hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. There's, but there's just something in the beauty of coming together with another human being yeah. that allows both pieces to occupy the same space. But in occupying the same space, they have to get rid of a little of what doesn't belong. 
Yeah. So because true. if two of us come in whole and we try and occupy a space that only allows for half of us or three quarters of us, we're not going to be able to make it. That's so you watch them in mosaic get rid of what doesn't belong and suddenly you have pieces that come together by their very nature helping each other get rid of what doesn't belong without teaching or fixing or changing and the mosaic becomes much more beautiful than any of the pieces on their own could be Love that. That's and so there's a the beauty new, of human connection yeah and there's a new paradigm that i think that is trying to come into the world that we live in whereas we're we're tired of being fixed. We're tired of being yeah. taught. We're tired of being told what to do. But we have the self-help world helping us. We have the government leading us. We have the teachers teaching us. We have the leaders leading us, you know. But what would happen if we turned the telescope around? Mm. It always intrigues me when I go into a room and there's one person speaking to thousands of people. What happens to the common knowledge of the thousands of people that are sitting there? Why wouldn't we create environments where the thousands of people speak to each other Yes, and learn from each other and just yeah. absorb the information of each other rather than thinking that one person is going to teach us something. Be the repository of all knowledge. Yeah, oh, that's, that's profound. That's well done. We're going to dive further into all these areas, but uh, I'm going to do what you do on your podcast interviews and start with your parents. Wow. <laughs> um, a huge place to start for me. And I think that's why I start there with other people. Yeah. Um, my dad was my hero. Yeah, uh, I can tell. Before it we... comes out brilliantly in your book. Thank you so much. Yeah, he, he, we, he passed away 52 years ago, 4th of July. Oh. My mom passed away 50 years ago, 4th of July. They both passed away on the same day, two, two years, years apart. apart. Just like so, yeah. So this was, I'm sorry, what did you say? Just like? Was it just like the character in your book? Yeah, Mo? just like Mo. Exactly. Exactly. So, so when oh, I the, say the joke there is that it's the inverse. Mo is just like you. Yeah, no. But autobiographical. But in that it, it's all good. <laughs> so when I say Mo, most of the time, secretly, you can replace me yeah. because he's, he sort of, it is the story of my life fabulized, but I didn't want to make it about me. I wanted to make it about, um, but that was the biggest moment of my life because I was a mini me before mini me's even existed. Wow. We would, we would go to, with my dad, we would go to the shore to, you know, if you know, we were from Philadelphia. So we would go ah, to it. Which is where I studied. Yeah. So where, <laughs> which school did you go to, by the way? I was at Penn. Penn. Yeah, of course. Beautiful school. So, I mean, all hell, you know. No, 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 please. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's but, still early in the conversation, Dan. You have time okay. to make that decision. <laughs> I don't think I'll change my mind. Um, so we would go to Jersey for the summer, you know, to, to Atlantic City. Yep. And and there was a board for those people who don't know Atlantic City. In those days, fifty years ago, it was like a, a, a cool place to be. And it was, a, there was this boardwalk and people would walk the boardwalk in front of, in front of the beach. And mm. there would be these little carts that were, that people would bicycle with carts with people just sitting in them and people would ride their bikes and people, and I would walk with my dad. I was maybe three or four years old. I was maybe three feet tall mm. and he was six, six feet tall. And I would hold his ring finger. Mm. And people would stop their carts and people would stop their bicycles 
just to take a, to look at us. Some people would take pictures of us, and I would I would look at my dad. I said, Dad, what? Why are these people looking at us and taking pictures of us? And we had the same exact gait. We waddled in the same way. We looked the same, but I was just a three foot version of my dad, who was a six foot version, and he was so. I was so connected to him that I was him in a smaller version. Amazing. And so at 13, when I went away, I was away at camp. Before I was going to camp, he said to me, I'm going to come and say goodnight to you now, but I'm also going to say, I'll see you on, on visitor's day, on parents' day at camp, because I'm going to leave early in the morning tomorrow. And I said, come on, dad, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm not going to let you go out of the house without me coming down there to see you and, and, and say goodbye to you. And I'll give you a big hug. Like, what time are you leaving? He said, I'm leaving at four o'clock. Then he don't think about getting up, just sleep. <laughs> you know, it's not, there's no reason. We're, he said, we say goodnight now. It's, it's nine o'clock, 9.30 now. Let's just say goodnight. Let's just say, I'll see you there. You can sleep. Just, there's no reason for you to get up that early. I said, come on, dad, I'm not going to miss that. I mean, what are you, crazy? I'm just not going to miss it. I'll see you tomorrow before you go. Well, four o'clock came and went, and I was still in bed sleeping. Yeah. And so I didn't get to say goodbye to my dad that night, that morning. And by the time Visitor's Day came, um, he had already passed away. Yeah. So now I believed... In, in this world that I lived in, I believed in this world that I lived in, but now suddenly it threw me a, 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 right, a, a right hook. Yeah, of course. Because how could I believe in a world that could randomly take my hero from me? Mm. That could randomly take anything from me in a moment without me having any sort of sense of being able to understand why. So what I did is I made up a story, I seen. I made up the story that if I had woken up and said goodbye to my dad before he went on that trip, that he would not have died making love to my mom four weeks later, that it was my fault that it happened. And as much as that story tormented me because I blamed myself for something that I had nothing to do with, yeah. it also gave me a sense of peace because suddenly now I lived in a world that would have a cause and effect reality to it. Suddenly so I was the cause, yeah. right? And, and I, I was in control of this random world yeah. that just stole that from me. And as irrational as that belief system was and is, like nobody, if you asked a thousand people, was there anything about me not getting up at four o'clock to say goodbye to my dad and him dying of a heart attack, making love to my mom four weeks later? There, I, I doubt there would be anyone, a philosopher, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't care who you ask, yes. you would say, yes, that, those situations are connected. Right. Well, as a 13-year-old going through this trauma, it's completely understandable. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, but I created that story. Yeah. And what I want people that are listening to hear is the power of the stories that we create that are not even true. Yeah. and what they do to us. And then two years later, my mom passed away. And my mom, I remember seeing her on July 2nd at the hospital. Mm. And she had written, written in her journal just another couple of days. Wow. And she wow. knew she was going to die on July 4th. 
And she went into a coma on July 3rd and we called the hospital and we said, we're coming. They said, you know, she's, she's out. He's like, you can sit here, but she's not even going to know you're here. Why don't you just come? I know tomorrow is a big day for you. Why don't you come tomorrow and see her? Well, by the time we got there, she had already passed away on the evening on, on, in the exact moments when my dad passed away in the evening that the third becomes the fourth. Yeah. She Uh passed away on the evening that the third became the fourth and she was gone too. Mm. And so I made up another story. And the story that I made up is my parents passed away on July 4th to teach me independence. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to know that there was independence day here. So they wanted me to know, be independent. Like you did, like you can't count on this world around you. You have to be able to be strong. You have to be able to build stuff on your own. You have to figure out a way to survive in a world that is, is crazy and, and different. It was only 40 years later, I seem, as I was sitting having coffee, talking to somebody about the mosaic, that I realized the message that I had gotten from my mom and dad passing on July 4th was the exact opposite of the message they were trying to tell me. Mm. They weren't born on July 4th. If they were born on July 4th, that would mean independence is, is life. That's the way to live your life, to be independent. They died on July 4th. And what they were trying to tell me is that when you're independent, you basically died a life because you, you can't exist independent. It's not This world was never meant for us to be alone. Disconnection is suffering. Disconnection is suffering. Yes, I wonder where you read that from. <laughs> uh, and so in the, and in the process of writing the mosaic and having that all come through again, what I really saw was, wow, it's amazing how much we invest in the stories we create and how much we believe in those stories, even when those stories are not right. Yeah. Well, it's... Um you know there's a saying it doesn't need to be the truth it just needs to be something we can believe in yeah yeah but that's dangerous as you so so dangerous we need to be sure that our stories are we need to be careful with what our what our stories are because they can really impact how we orient ourselves and all that we do in life and at least we grow up fearing our stories one of the most beautiful things i realized having written a book and having written I wrote a book for another hotel called the Andaz in Maui before. Sure, uh, yeah, I saw about that. And and I wrote about, they asked me to tell the story of their hotel. And I said, okay, tell me what the story is. They said, no, we don't have a story. <laughs> and we want you to create a story. So um, I said, well, how are we going to do that? And I said, okay, I have an idea. Send me your core values. I'll make characters based on your core values. And tell me why people come here. Tell me why you think people are going to come here. They said they're going to come here to fall in love. And so I created a story around this property, which was the home of a family. Mm. And the family got dispersed all throughout the land. And the characters in my story were the family coming back. And they fell in love. They were, there was a love story that brought them back to this island, that brought them back to this place. That's beautiful. I love that. And, and I didn't even realize that's what I was doing, but I just wrote this love story through these characters that I created. And they had me come to present to their 400 employees. And the day before I was doing that, I was walking on the beach in San Diego. And I had this thought, Danny, what if you didn't create these characters? 
And I said, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Like, the, I'm just walking on the beach talking to myself like, I'm, like an insane guy, you know? And, and, and they said, well, what if we just used you and opened you up and, and these characters actually were real? And they came to you to, to bring the story that is the real story of this property back. Mm. And I said, that can't be true. I mean, you know, but uh, like I consider it, what would that feel like? And it stayed with me the whole plane ride over to Hawaii. And as I'm speaking to the people, I said, look, I'm a very honest person. Like what you see is what you get. I'm 100% here. I could tell you this BS story that I got when I was walking on the beach, but it's not true. Okay. And yet it won't go away while I'm here. It won't go away. So I haven't, I feel like I have an obligation mm. to at least present the story that's being told to me in the last moments before I gave this, this talk to you. Like, let me make this clear. I made up the characters. I built them on your core values. I made up the story. I, I it's a complete, it's a complete manifestation of my own imagination and what I believed you guys wanted here. <laughs> and yesterday I was walking on the beach and this and these voices came to me and said, what if that's not true? What if, what if we told you the story that we wanted you to get because we want to return to our homeland? And the reason why these people are hired is not because they're the best uh, front office person or the best sales team or the best uh, hotel manager or the best chef which they are, by the way. But they are dispersed family members who used to live here generations and generations. And it's the families of the family of the family. Well, and it's been, a, it's a callback to yeah. our family to come back to our home. Wow. And invite guests to come into our home and be treated as guests in our home. That's beautiful. I love that. And so I said to them, like you decide, I'm telling you what I believe is real. And I'm telling you what happened to me. Which would you like to have? And from the back of this room, of the room, I could hear him. This big Kuhana <laughs> is, sitting, is sitting back there and he's going, Ohana, Ohana. And Ohana means family. Yeah. And suddenly it starts to spread. And the people around them are going, Ohana, Ohana, Ohana. And suddenly the room, 400 people are chanting Ohana. The lights in the room started to flicker. The doors blew open. The windows opened and, and shut. And I thought, holy, you know, holy Toledo, like well, maybe something else is going on here. And I said to them, what the heck happened? And they said, ah, now you know what the power of Hawaii is. Wow. And so we believe that we are the Ohana coming back. That's brilliant. And That's the amazing... The amazing thing, let me, the amazing final thing, and then I'll shut up. The amazing final thing is months later, they, they wrote me and said, whatever you did, whatever you created here, our hotel is testing on its service, on its service surveys. We are testing higher than any Hyatt hotel in the world. <laughs> and we thought, well, it's just Hawaii. And there was a, another Hawaii Hyatt. 10 miles away. Right. And we went and looked at their service scores. They're testing the lowest. So oh. it wasn't because the people were here from Hawaii in this region. Yeah. And that's the way they treat people. It was the story that we made up that, that happened that people, that people owned that people took. 
Oh, again, you built connection. Yes. It was something that they could uh, be inspired by and it spoke to them at their core. That's yeah. so fascinating. Very interestingly, Danny, um, andaz in Hindi means way of thinking. Oh, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. It's kind of beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Applies here. And, and it's really, and that, like, it's almost like paradigm. But it's like, um, it, it's also, there's a nuance there of, because um, generational, it's often invoked there where uh, the andaz is different for the generation that it is for the younger. So your view of the world or the way of thinking, it captures that nuance. This is the beauty of language. They, you can never get very precise when you try to translate. Um, but uh, so, uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a, an amazing story. And you invoked that. You were very much uh, the gardener. Yes. In that, uh, in that setting. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, but, but what's so beautiful is I had no idea that happened. And now in listening to you explain the meaning of that word, which I didn't know, it makes the story that I didn't want to tell all the more real. Yeah. Because there was not only a connection to each other of we are now coming back to our homeland, but there was a connected connection to the lineage of family that had exactly. been there before. Yeah. Connection to older generations, to 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 family lineage. And there, yeah. there's so much power in that. There is, uh, absolutely. And that's certainly uh, a, a very profound Asian theme. Uh, if you look at many of the uh, religions and what uh, uh, they do in terms of... Um, honoring uh past family yeah. members um that's really fantastic that you shared that and then it certainly has been um how you've lived uh, your life as you've talked about your parents and and honoring them with with the book um i can only imagine how challenging it was as a teenager a young teenager to lose both of them uh 13 yeah. and 15. um you made your way to, to college. Um, you started studying psychology and then after two years, you decided to explore the world. Tell us about that. So sometimes the greatest tragedies are our greatest blessings. And don't get me wrong. I don't for one minute want to say to you that my parents passing away was not the most devastating thing that I've ever experienced. It would certainly was. I know exactly what you mean. But something miraculous happened in that. My mother, sister, they weren't that close. They were close growing up, but then somehow they became distant. They, we lived in Philadelphia. They lived in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. But she had married a man who had become a household name. Mm -hmm. And when my parents passed away, we naturally, we didn't, I didn't know them very well. We, we, we weren't in much contact with them. So we were naturally going to go live. I was going to go live with my best friend's parents and, and go yeah. and be a part of his family. And my brother right. was going to live with, you know, parents of one of my other friends, but who, who just loved him. They were like his, his surrogate parents. Right. And we got a call from my aunt and uncle who said, we're, we're going to bring you here. Wow. And um, what was a tragedy turned out to be an amazing opportunity. I was sitting with my, in my, in, in that place where I, where we felt like strangers and I was an arrogant little kid to show you the level of control that existed there on, 
we had gotten haircuts because we knew we were going to the Midwest from Philadelphia. Our hair wasn't that long, but we got it cut really short so we could not be stand out. And on the way home from the airport to the house, my uncle decided he should take us to the barbershop before we go to the house. <laughs> and they gave us a buzz cut. Wow. You know, they, they gave us crew cuts. Oh, goodness. And so we were, you know, pissed was not even a good yeah. word to say. We Here we were, we lost our parents. Now we were with this control freak. Your brother is younger than you? My brother's older than me. Older, but how many years? He's four years older. Okay. Um, and so he lasted about two weeks there because <laughs> I was 15, he was 19, and he was yeah. going to school. He had just been accepted to the State University of New York at Sunny, sure. which, was a, which was a new school that was opening up at that point in time. Oh, okay. And he was accepted. They were only taking juniors, and he was in a senior class, and he wasn't doing great in school because they never captured his creativity. And he's, mm. he, was a, he was always a round peg that was trying to go into a square hole. Yeah. But it's sunny. There were round pegs. There was a there was a school of round pegs waiting to be put into round holes. Nice. And so he went there, and he just said, "I'm going to go here. This is finally feels like it's a place." And and from that moment on, he excelled in his academics. But my uncle couldn't see that. He said, "Any school that would take you with the grades that you have can't be a good school. I'm not I'm not going to let you go there. And I'm going to have you come here and go to the university here in, in the Midwest." Oh. And my brother said, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Good for him. And so my brother left two weeks into it. So now I was a 15-year-old kid without own. my mom, without my dad, without my brother living with strangers who, you know, buzz cut me. Yeah. And I was mad. I was angry. I was, you're not my parents. What are you doing? I was, I was defiant. And I want to paint the other side of that story because the other side of that story was that they were so generous and kind and wanted to give me every opportunity that they could possibly give me. And they showed me a world that I would never in a million years have seen. I went from a lower middle-class family to an elite upper-class family to one of the top families in America. Mm. And the opportunities that came as a result of that were vast. And my uncle said it was in the days where 50 years ago, you didn't give your business over to your daughters. It just wasn't socially correct. Thank God the world's changed. But in those days, it was unheard of. So he his, he didn't have a son. That's fair. So when I came, he, he knew I would be problematic. But he said, I'm going to watch you for the next month. Because I have some plans for you if, if, if I see something that's possible. And I said, okay, I don't know, whatever, whatever you think you're going to do, go, you know, go for it. Just let me know what you're thinking. <laughs> a month later, he sat me down. He said, Danny, I'm going to make your life a beautiful life. I'm going to, I'm going to start you out tomorrow. I'm going to start you out pushing a broom at the office. And I'm going to watch you and I'm going to allow you to rise to your level of where you can be. And I'm going to mentor you so that you don't get caught and stuck in a certain level. So my goal is that in 15 years, when it's time for me to retire, that you take my seat mm. and that I've trained you and mentored you and grown you and you've seen it from the bottom up and you've done it. What do you think? And so I said, boy, what a generous, kind offer. But I have no idea who you are. Yeah. 
So I don't know if I want to be you. Yeah. I'd like to take a year and watch you. Mm. You took a month and you're way smarter than I am. You're way, you know, you're, you're, you know, a lot about, you have great instincts. I know nothing. I'm a 15 year old kid. So let me watch you for a year and just see if the offer you want to give me of, of having all of this is one, something I even want. And he said, Danny, do you know that 99.99999% of the people in the world would have said, where's the broom closet? Let me go. Uh, why start tomorrow? Let me start today. I said, just our rotten luck that I'm the point oh 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 oh. <laughs> Not your rotten luck. Point one. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Everyone sort of. So. A year later, we had a lunch together and he said, I want, what's the answer to my question? I said, I have three questions. And in answering those three questions, we both realized it wasn't my place to be. Yeah. And so that's so good. He, I pretty much got excommunicated. Yeah. I know what that's like. <laughs> and, and <laughs> tell me what's the, how did that happen for you? No, no, no. Let's I, please continue this story. I just, I, I, <laughs> really just want to communicate i can empathize with that and there'll be a chance for me to share that I okay know, but not at the moment all right so what i realized is that money to people who are rich means the ability to control people yeah and one and of well, the, the belief that you can control the belief that you can control people and and if you can't control people you can't you can't have them around as a reminder because they're a reminder of you can't control everybody and i was like a sore i was like a you know a black sheep in the in the white sheep family um and so to their credit and really to their credit they tried multiple times to cross their line of excommunication and help me along in my way but each time it felt like it had a string of attachment to it of course yeah and each time as good as the offer was never as beautiful as running a billion dollar company. I mean, what, what, who would, who turns down the offer to take, to be trained to run a billion dollar company? I mean, you gotta be my good friend, Danny does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I, I would, I would invite you to find three, four more people to fit onto the hand of that person. Right. <laughs> I don't think you will. Nope. So basically, you have a middle finger sticking up to the world, and that's about it. Right? Um, yeah. But it's and, really admirable that choice that you made because it you. lacked authenticity for you. Yeah, I, the truth of the matter is, I don't think I would have made it anyway, because I, I, I don't. I, I... You didn't care enough about it. That was clear. And it, it, it wasn't your calling, but also I think you sensed that you didn't really care what happened with the business, whether it went to 2 yeah. billion or plummeted. It was all the same. It just, it just didn't capture your imagination, your interest in that way. And I respect that a lot. Yeah. It, what I saw in the time that I was there was that as happy as they presented, they didn't think they had any friends because they thought the people only liked them for their money. Yeah. They were worried their daughters were the people that were coming to marry their daughters were only worried marrying them because of their last name, you know, they, and so when I looked at the world that I would be involved in, I just said to him, why would you want to give me this gift? Yeah. Why would you want to give me the gift of not having friends? Because I think all the people care about is what I can give them. 
that's not a world that I want to live in. I want to, I, and even if I could live in that, why would you give that gift to my children? Yeah. And even if I could live in that, why would you like, if I, if I'm coming up pushing a broom from the bottom to the top and I see things that I think could be adjusted to make the company be even stronger and, and, and have more of a culture of, of, of harmony together, would you allow me to make those changes? My uncle said, why, Denny, if it ain't broken, why fix no, it? fix it, yeah. Right? And so I said, so what do you think? Where do you think our opportunities lie here? So, um, so I went to school to study psychology because I was still looking like Mo. Yeah. I was looking for that place called heaven. Here, I, here, here it seemed like it was in a billion dollar, running a billion dollar company. Like that's heaven to most people. Most people would say, boy, given that opportunity, who gets the opportunity to do that? That's my heaven. That's what I've been looking for. That's all I want. Everybody just wants to make money and have money and do all the things that money can do. That wasn't that left. That wasn't where I was looking. I was looking for that unconditional love that my mom and dad had, gave me, that I couldn't find anywhere. I didn't find it in my aunt and uncle. I didn't find it in the business that they had. I didn't find it in the excommunication offer that was given. It was a very conditional offer. Yeah. When I went to psych, to school and study psychology, I took all the courses to get an undergraduate degree in psychology in two years, and so by eighteen, I had I had done all that, and I said. What are we going to do is just spend more money to take filler courses? This isn't what I want to do. This isn't answering the questions. So I put my thumb out on the road and hitchhiked around the world nice. in, the ho in the hopes that I would meet people that were right. just people that I would share experiences with and through their experiences of sharing people with people and connecting and having those experiences, I would learn something and I learned a lot, but that wasn't my freedom either. Uh, and so then I went to a seminary and on my trips. I was traveling en route to India. I was going to go to mm. see a teacher that I wanted to see. And I got waylaid in, in Jerusalem, Israel. Okay. And this is where you studied to be a rabbi, but studied to be a rabbi become ordained as one. Yeah. And the wise man in my book was the rabbi uh, that stopped me from going to India Wow. because he said to me, um, he was an old holy man. Who, who I met through a, a book that told me there's a wise man, holy man, who stays up every night from two to six in the morning and wants to see people in, the, in those hours. And so I went to sit with him. And have you ever had this moment where your arm goes pins and needles and you can't move it? You literally have to pick it up with your other arm and move it? Yeah. My whole body went like that. So it was when I went into, when I entered the doorway to come see him, I couldn't move my body. My body was pins and needles. I couldn't move. And I was trying all the time to get to this chair. And this was a lot of years ago. This was when I was 18 or 19 years old. So this is, you know, a lot of years ago. So we didn't have computers. We didn't have downloads. We don't, we, I didn't know what that even meant. But I felt this, this man like downloading me into his, into his system. And within minutes, I felt like this guy knew me better than any person had ever known me. Finally, somebody had gotten me. Finally, someone knew me. Finally, I, maybe I was getting closer to that thing that I was searching for. And eventually, he, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing to get to this chair. And eventually, the, he re released what I think was this force field that he put up that kept me wow. sta stable there. And I stumbled into the chair, and he looked at me like, whoa, like, well, you know, what? what that's a little clumsy. 
and I sat down and there were there were men sitting at the table with beards that make mine look like you know just a, a stubble right. and they and they looked like they were wise and holy men and and he was sitting with six or seven of them and and he he says come sit down and I had gone there to get a blessing to go to India because I that's where my destination was that's where my heart was I wanted to be in India with my with this man that I thought was my teacher and so he's asking me all these super, super, superficial questions, like, how long have you been in Israel? Where have you been? And I'm looking at him like, like, I'm sorry, sir, you know me better than any person in the whole world. What are you asking me these stupid questions for? Like, why are you wasting time with that? I've come here to get a blessing for India. Will you please bless my trip to India? And he looked at me and he said, get out of my office. And I said, I'm sorry, my Hebrew is not that good. He said, how's your English? I said, my English is pretty good. He said, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I can't leave here. I mean, I had this incredible experience with you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, this is the day before I'm going to go to Turkey. I'm going to fly to Turkey and go over land from Turkey to India. This is not the way I plan on starting my trip. Yeah. And he said, um, if you're not going to leave, I'm going to leave. Wow. And he got up with the six guys and they went out. And I'm sitting in this room by myself. It's like 3.30 in the morning. And I'm thinking, now what do I do? Hmm. He comes back into the room. One of his students comes back in the room because in Judaism, you need 10 men to say certain prayers. Mm, right. I didn't know those prayers. I said, I don't know the prayers. They said, are you Jewish? I said, yes. They said, just come. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there. Just the fact that you're there is we need, we have a, we have our 10th man. <laughs> so the Rebbe's one of the 10 men. So I look at him and he looks at me out of the corner of his eye. I said, ah, I think I got you. I owe you owe me one now because <laughs> I got you to your 10, right? right. So I go back to the room after prayer time. Now it's like 5.30 in the morning, 5, 5.45. I got to take a, 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 a Sheirut, a, 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 a taxi mm -hmm. from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And I'm a seven-mile walk from where I have to get to, mm -hmm. uh, to get my bags. And I'm thinking, now what am I going to do? Like, what? He's, he's still not coming here. So I went said to one of his students, will you tell the Rebbe somebody's sitting here waiting to see him? And he walks into the room and he goes, oh, it's you. And he turns around and goes and turns away. I said, stop. And he looked at me like, who the hell are you to tell me to stop like that? And I said, I'm sorry. This has been a long night. I came here. I felt you. You know me better than anybody in the world. I can't allow you to just turn away and leave. I've cut, you're a teacher, I'm a student. Teach me. What is it you're trying to say mm -hmm. to me? He said, Danny, you think you've seen Israel north, south, east, and west. You say you've been here nine months. You say you've seen every piece of Israel. I don't believe you've seen anything because you don't know how to see. Mm -hmm. So you'll go to India. You'll see it north, south, east, and west. You'll see everything, but you won't see anything. If you want to learn how to see, come back tomorrow. Wow. 
I said, but tomorrow I, I, I'm leaving today. I'm leaving in like, he, he said, uh -huh. that's why I threw you out of my office. The beauty of that story, that share is that um, it's a, the, a big theme in, in your book, The Mosaic, about knowing how to see. Yes. Because so many of us don't know how. Yeah, we see a world that is the world we see but we don't see the world that is because we're still in our own way. Yeah. But I, I wrote that note down from, from uh, reading. Um, it'll take me a moment to find it, but uh, uh, yeah, it was brilliantly said. Um, you were there in Israel for five years and then you went to, to the Sierra Nevada mountains and yes. you were in a monastery for a while. Yeah. I, I lived as a monk for 10 years in a monastery in, in Northern California Amazing! Wow. And, and all in search for the heaven because I thought, I thought being in Israel and being amongst a group of men that were beautiful being, I was one day away from being ordained a rabbi and I just looked and I said, I can't, I can't do this because my whole of my prayer time, is being spent telling God how glorious he is, how fabulous it is. I'm talking all the time. I'm not listening to him. He's probably trying to tell me something, but there's not time in my prayers. There's no time within the prayers that I say to listen to what he wants to say back to me. And I went to the Rebbe and I said, where's the time to listen? And they said, there's a, there's a prayer that we have that gives you about 18 or 20 seconds of quiet. It's in those 18 or 20 seconds of quiet that you have to hear what he's saying to you. I said, well, what if I can't? What if I'm, you know, too dense? So the idea of sitting in quiet, mm. the idea of sitting in solitude, the idea of sitting in meditation and not having to tell God how glorious he is, I think he already knows that. I mean, I can acknowledge that I love him and I adore him and, and just like I would in a lover relationship with a woman that I would be with. I mean, it's important to tell your, your lover that you love him yeah. or love her. Absolutely. But if you spend all your time saying how much you love her and don't give her a chance to tell her, to hear what she feels for you, you don't have a relationship. That's right. It's one way. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So having, having 14 hours of the day where I could sit and quiet and just be with my beloved and not have to talk. Hmm. And just listen to all the gloriousness of what I was hearing. So Israel taught me to see. The monetary, monastery taught me to listen. Listen. That's beautiful. Wow. I'd love for you to talk about um, your first marriage. Um, and, and you talked a little bit about Hay House. And I think... Um, you know, that was another opportunity where uh, you, you created this amazing company out of uh, uh, a much smaller uh, footprint. But I'd love to think, talk about, um, you know, how, how you lost your wife to cancer. And then, of yeah. course, uh, your, your daughter, Elisa. Am I pronouncing yeah. that right? Elisa, yeah. Elisa. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when I was in the monastery, I'd been in 10 years and I, and I guess I was getting a little flirtatious because I was probably, there was a part of me that was lonely also. 
And I thought that I was protected by my robe or, or, or my apparent robe. We didn't wear robes. But the fact that I was in the monastery made me feel like I had a protection, that I could, I could be loving, I could hug people, I could do things. And, I, and I, I'm genuine. And um, I went away to, because I was leading pilgrimages to different holy places and bringing people from our community to that to those places and so i went to israel went back there and was and instead of going as a jewish man going there i went to walk the footsteps of christ because now we were mm -hmm. that was a, an important thing to the people in the community we were in yeah and i came back and the woman that i had been a little bit flirtatious with picked me up at the airport okay and so I said, oh, uh, I didn't expect to see you here. She said, well, you, you have no idea what you're about to expect. And I said, tell me. She said, well, while you were gone, I moved you out of the monastery and into my house. Oh, okay. I said, I'm sorry, you did what? <laughs> she said, well, you're authentic. And I didn't think you were being authentic. I think we have something here. And I think you were hiding behind your robe. And I think it's time for us to be together and see what happens. And wow. she was right. And, and I what mean, year was that, Danny? I'm just so curious. Uh, so let me see. I was, I was, I think I was 33 when that happened. So now I'm 65. So 22 years ago, no, 32 years ago. Yeah. So 32 years ago, what would that be? That would be 88, 88, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So I think, and so, we got together in, in about 1988. Amazing. And then we went on a trip to India. We wanted to have a child. We went on a pilgrimage to India. And there was, a, there was a, a, some big pole in, in one of the holy places that we went. And they said, if you can put your arms behind your back and touch your hands around <laughs> oh, this yes. pole. I know what this is. I, I don't even remember what it is. <laughs> but I put my arms behind my back and I could touch my hands together. And, and they said, your wish shall come true. Yep. And I wish for a child. And our daughter was born within that year, like one mm -hmm. year, within one year of that time. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and so, and yet, our daughter, my daughter, I held her in my arms when she was born. And I just started crying tears and everybody thought it was tears of joy. But what my daughter was saying to me from the moment she came out is I made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. I don't want to be here. Oh, wow. And I heard it as clearly as I'm hearing you speak to me. And I said, it's okay. You know, you'll be fine. And we called her Elisa Haya Levin. Elisa is life and high, uh, is joy. Haya is life and Levin with the servants of the, of God wow. in the Jewish, in Judaism. Wow. So I said, Elisa, you're going to love this. You're going to, because I know life is not what you think it is, but we're, we, we can do this. But she didn't want to be here. She, she, she told me later in her, in her processes that she thought she was coming here for moments, not for for a long life. Mm -hmm. When she looked at it from the place that she saw it, it looked like it went by like that. So she took on all these complications because she thought it was just a short time. When she got here, it slowed down. And she, as soon as she came in, she realized that she went, whoa, you know, this is, I can't be here. And she's developmentally delayed. And that developmental delay made my wife go, go bonkers. Like she was kind and loving. Also, my denial of it, I kept saying, no, she's just slow. She'll get there in her time. And my wife saw more clearly. And um, it was really hard for my wife. Yes. 
And so what happened is I was a big spokesperson against affairs, but my daughter and my brought a little schism between my wife and I, and I was standing somewhere and a woman walked through me, not by me. Mm. And literally her DNA remained in me and my DNA went into her and she stopped. And I said, don't stop. Just keep walking. I don't have any idea who you are. I'm married. This is not something I do. I don't know what the heck is going on, but just forget it ever happened. But neither one of us could forget it ever happened. Yeah. And um, I see what happens for me is the time that we experience the most difficulties in my life have been when two of my core values are in opposition to each other. Mm. Yeah. I had, a, I had a core value of integrity and being a man of integrity and doing what a man of integrity does. And I had a core value of wanting un to be unconditionally loved and loved beyond measure of anything that I could ever imagine. And as much as my integrity was the way I defined myself when it met that feeling of being loved beyond any possible earthly love that I could have, I stood no chance. Yeah. And as much, as much as I fought it, as much as we both fought it, we had an affair. Okay. When I told my wife about the affair, 10 months later, she had stage four breast cancer. Okay. And she went through the most painful death you could ever imagine. She went through five years of fighting your cancer the last two and a half years. She was in blood curdling, screaming pain for 45 minutes, every 45 minutes. So she would be 45 minutes in blood curdling, screaming pain, 45 minutes with no pain. Wow. All day, all night. And so I would go from being taking care of her and I'm, I'm the great white knight at that moment. And nothing bad happens to people when I'm around them. Mm. And I was two inches from her and couldn't take one second of her pain away. Mm. And then I would go when she was well, I would go and be with my daughter because she was home with us and I was taking care of her. And that went on for two and a half years. So on my daughter's eight, when my daughter turned eight, my wife passed away. Right. And now I was a man-man trying to raise a developmentally delayed kid. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea how to do that. Presents a lot of challenges. And out of all the beautiful people that I've had the opportunity to be with, out of all the teachers and great people that, that I've had come into my life, my daughter's taught me the greatest lesson, lesson that I could ever learn. And maybe this story can be the one that we end because I'm sensitive now to time. Well, uh, and that was unconditional love. That was, that was unconditional love. And it was also the art of listening. Yeah. Yeah. Which as a, a parent is such a, a critical tool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you expand on this when you talk about this ability to laugh together and, and you communicate in a way that doesn't use words. Yeah, because she can't use words. She doesn't know how to speak. When she speaks, nobody understands her. Yeah. But she counts on me to understand her. Yeah. And when I couldn't understand her, she would yell because she would hope she thought maybe I didn't hear her. Right. Which is but, everyone's biggest frustration when we're not seen or heard. We act out. And exactly. And so when I didn't hear her when she yelled, that she tantrumed. When I didn't hear her when she tantrumed, she attacked. And what she taught me is that that's what 
so so I said to her, in my frustration, Elisa, we have to find a way that you can speak to me without words. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she said, I am daddy. Mm. And she she was putting thoughts into my head, it turns out. Wow. And as soon as we realized that, she's never screamed, she's never a tantrum, she's never attacked again. Because mm -hmm. we realized that we know how to hear each other. But here's the thing, Asim, every single person that I meet, every single person that I work with, every single person that comes across my way, follows those same exact patterns. Yeah. They, when they speak and they don't get heard, they yell. When they yell and they don't get heard, <laughs> they create a scene. When they create a scene and they don't get heard, they try to destroy. And so it is such a, a, an, it is such a powerful lesson about learning how to listen to another human being and the power that comes when we do listen to another human being. Yeah, it's true. When we truly listen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, small example with my son. Um, he is such a sweet boy and he's loved at school. They call him the mayor at his school because everybody knows him and adores him. Um, at home with me, he uses a lot of profanity. And my uh, instruction to him at the outset was, you can use profanity if it's warranted, but you gotta know how to use it. If you use it all the time, people are gonna think you're uneducated or you don't know what you're doing, but those words have a lot of energy, so be thoughtful about it. And he was just throwing them left, right, center. And I, I tried disciplining, I tried scolding, I tried taking away uh, privileges, nothing was working. Finally, when uh, he did it again, I said to him, you know what, Millen? Daddy really loves you. Hmm. I see you, I hear you. Is there something you wanna do with, together right now? That's the only thing that made him stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I had to really listen to what he was saying. He just wanted attention. So the beautiful thing is how that how how you saw that. But that's the same thing that happens in, in with CEOs of companies. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that happens with employees in those companies. That's the same thing that happens in the medical profession, in, in our political world, in, in our education system. We all do the same thing. And when we realize that if we would just take the time to sit and say, what is it? Like, I'm interested. I want you to talk to me. What is it that you're trying to say? As soon as she didn't need to tantrum or, or yell mm -hmm. or tantrum or attack. Yeah. Once she here feels heard, she doesn't have to do that because she feels heard. Yeah. Once we allow people to be heard and once we... We listen to people. Uh, I also, for a very short period of time, I had more more of a leisure line of clothing called Zensei. I saw that, yeah, exactly, where you have these positive images, yeah. and it was based on the Japanese scientist. Uh, Emoto. Yes, about the uh, yeah. meaningfulness of water that it ascribes to yeah. saying. So. It, it wasn't necessarily based, but I had had the idea that if I was at Hay House and people were buying the words of people, in, of these yeah. famous people in books, I thought, why don't we put the words on t-shirts? Why wouldn't they like that? And then I, then I brought Emoto to Hay House to be published. And I started talking with him through his interpreter. And I found out that he had this idea that if you put a message on your water bottle uh or a positive word that changes the molecular structure of your water bottle so yeah. i went to him and i said why the hell would you waste time doing that when you your whole <laughs> body's made up of water exactly we're over 80 percent water uh, I mean, we're 80 percent water so why in the heck would we waste time putting messages on our bottle yeah. why don't we put messages on our clothing 
And what would that do? Do you believe that would do anything? He said, Danny, I think it would change the molecular structure of people's bodies. So I said, nobody knows about you. Can I share your message with the, the world through the branding of my company? That's so great. And he said, fabulous. So I said, fabulous. And that, and it became, it became, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. I, I had no idea what I was doing, but Neiman Marcus called me up and said, we want it in our stores. And, and Fred Siegel called, Fred Siegel came by and I didn't even know who they were. You know, <laughs> they, came, they came by and they said, we need these pieces tonight. That's I said, I'm good. sorry, I'm sorry, you can't have them. I mean, this is, they said, I don't think you understand. We have a client that we want to sell and we're, we're Fred Siegel. I said, you could be God himself. I can't give them to you. These are my samples. Right. I don't have anything but these. They said, right. I mean, do you have any idea who we are? I said, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> they said, you don't know who Fred Siegel is? I said, no. Uh-uh. And they said, you're, you're such an oddball, but we love you. <laughs> so like, as soon as you get pieces, will you get them to us? Nice. And so so I'm still friends with the woman who came by and, you know, did that. That's great. Well, you say you didn't know what you were doing, but you kind of did. Well, I don't know. I don't think that I did because, you know, I I (laughs) still don't think. You were following your heart. You were being authentic. You were being natural. That's. I had an idea. Like if if people are buying books, why wouldn't they buy words on clothes? But nobody had ever put words on clothes before. And it so takes that level of innovation, that thinking yeah. to, to make things happen. So kudos on that. I had, I had on my podcast, a guy who calls himself the fell coach oh. and, and he owns the URL of the fell coach. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody in the, in their right mind would ever say they're a fell, fell coach, right? Yeah. Because everybody wants to talk about success, but he says you can't have success if you don't have failure. Nothing comes you without absolutely, failing. absolutely need that. And um, this is really what I like to focus on, on on this show is what were the decisions? What were the paths? What, like, what brought you to the success? Um, what were those struggles? What was the adversity? That's more interesting. That's really where we learn. Yeah. yeah. How many years do you have for me to explain all those things to you? Yeah, as much time as you've got. We can just uh, keep going. <laughs> well, look. In the life that I've lived, I've had the opportunity to be with the wealthiest people in the world and the poorest people in the world. Every single one of them wants the same three things. Yeah. They want to be loved and accepted. They want to be listened to and heard. They want to be acknowledged and validated. Yeah. In 65 years, nobody's ever said to me, Danny, I want you to agree with me. <laughs> they don't care. They know I have the right to my own belief systems. Right, right. But when they feel loved and accepted and validated and acknowledged and listened to and heard, we become the best friends you could ever imagine. Yeah, it's true. And everything about them changes. I'm doing this thing now, 50 50 conversations with 50 strangers. Nice. And I'm watching as I hold the space for people to just say what they want to say. Yeah. Even their physical features on their face change. Yeah. No, it's so true, Danny. You've got it absolutely right. Danny, thank you for being who you are. My honor. Thank you for holding the space for me to share with you. You're, you're a beautiful man, Asim, just like I thought from the beginning. <laughs> I find beauty in you, and I'm just full of gratitude that the universe, the mosaic, has brought us together. Thank you so much. <laughs> Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.